0: Would you pray with me? Father, we know you are worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. And I thank you for each one who is gathered here today. I pray that um, as our bodies are here in this room, our hearts would be here in this room also. I'm meeting with you, um, letting your word your living and powerful word speak into our lives. Pray that you would um, fill us with your spirit, that we would be attentive to what you're saying here in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8, we'll be at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 today. maybe a little bit different passage than people might expect at christmas time but this is a message that talks about the birth of jesus christ god the father sent his son to be born as a man to save sinful men amen <laughs> uh, the the son god the son was born as a man this doesn't sound too profound to our ears. Um, We've all heard this before at this point uh, in our lives. And during the Christmas season, we hear this a lot. Jesus is born. Even people who are completely secular people know that Jesus was born on Christmas. We sing songs about it, and we hear sermons about it, and today is one of those sermons. But my hope today is um, to draw your mind past the Christmas story to the reality behind the Christmas story, what it means that God came in the flesh. And a couple weeks ago, we had a message on Emmanuel, what it means that God is with us. Um, Today is a little different. It's about the significance of the fact that God came in human flesh. God the Father sent his Son to be born as a man, as a human, with human flesh, to save sinful men. So we are going to read the text, and uh, this is some dense language. Um, this is a very famous section. A lot of people find it confusing. But I, I want us to read a good chunk of this text and I really want us to focus and really hang on every word. So I'm going to do something we don't often do and ask you if you are able, go ahead and stand with me as I read. Um, and I'm going to read from Romans 7:13 through 8, 8. Really try to read along, focus on the text starting in chapter 7, verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members." O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thank you for standing with me. I, I think it helps to, to untangle all of that dense language. So the book of Romans is considered by many to be Paul's magnum opus. Uh, it, it's a very um, logically established book. It reads like a legal case. Paul talks about all the doctrines relating to salvation, all of those Asian words. We talk about justification, sanctification, predestination, glorification, all those words show up in Romans 8 alone. All throughout the book of Romans, we, we have all these big thoughts about what it means to be saved and how salvation works. And so to set the context of our passage here, in Romans 7, at the beginning, Paul is discussing the law, the law of Moses. And he's talking about how we're not under the law We are not under the law's power anymore. So we have no problem believing that we're not under the law and having to obey it. But the law, you know, we tend to think of it in this modern Western way as like a code of ordinances. When we think of the word law, we think of laws, tax laws, and laws about driving and laws about whether you need an aisle that's four feet wide or two feet wide. We, we think about all these little ordinances that are written up in a code somewhere. But the law, as it's conceptualized in the Bible, is more about authority. It's about power. It is a whole unit. It's not a list of... It, is, it was a list of commands, but, but the, the law was a whole unit if you offend the law in one point, you are guilty of all. And we are out from the authority of that law. That's what the beginning of Romans 7 is about. We live by the Spirit, verse 6 says, not by the letter of the law. Well then, verses 7 through 12 talk about how the law isn't bad, the law is holy. And we see a transition here in chapter 7, Paul starts talking about the law of God. Now, we'll define this a little bit more later. The law of God is bigger than the law of Moses. Um, the law of Moses was God's plan for Israel from the time of Moses to Christ. But the law of God is before, before and after that. Cain broke the law of God when he murdered Abel long before Moses wrote down the law. And, you know, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were judged by God for breaking his law, again, long before Moses. So, so we see the law of God here that we're talking about is bigger than just the law of Moses. And verses 13 through 20 that we just read, he's talking about how he wants to obey the law of God. He wants to live a righteous life in his inner man he delights to do the law of God verse 22 tells us but he finds that his flesh is unable to do it his flesh takes what is holy and actually uses it for sin verse 13 says sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good God's laws are good but sin takes those laws and uses them to Produce death. And then verses 21 through 25, this, this passage of anguish for Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we get to chapter 8, which many people have called Romans 8 the best chapter in the Bible, and I tend to agree with them. It starts off with this great declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful truth that is. And so we have this assertion here in Romans 8.1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then we have following this a series of statements that begin with for, 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 because, for. So Paul has built up to this no condemnation point, and then he's going to explain it a little bit for us. And what we find here in Romans 8, 1 through 7, uh, well, really verse 8 two, is that we have three truths, three big truths about life in the flesh. So, truth number one, is that your actions reveal where you have set your mind, Uh, that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Action and thought go hand in hand. But we, as Christians, often have carnal thoughts, and those are not necessarily sinful thoughts. They can be sinful thoughts, but they don't have to be. Things like grocery lists and schoolwork and sports and entertainment are not intrinsically sinful, and they occupy a lot of our thoughts. Um, but Colossians 3.2 tells us, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And then we see here in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the spirit. So what are, what are you setting your mind on? Are you spiritually minded? I think here we can tend to um, jump to an extreme conclusion. You hear people talk about that all movies are sinful because they're a waste of time. And, and you hear things like this from people. People have lots of opinions about everything. Uh, we can jump to this extreme conclusion, well, I need to be spiritually minded. That means I need to put on headphones that are blasting scripture 24-7. I need to have it on my ears while I sleep to make sure I'm spiritually minded. I think what this is talking about here is the end of your thoughts. Um, that is the end of your thoughts Christ and the things of Christ? Is the end of your thoughts spiritual things? Our actions reveal where we have set our mind. So if we want to know what the end of our thoughts are, then we need to look at our actions. So just one of those things I listed before, grocery lists. Well, you need to think about grocery lists if you want to live. You need to think about what food you're going to buy and eat. But if you're thinking about that food because you want to gratify your own desires about food. I know my doctor says I shouldn't eat this, but I want to, so I'm going to buy it at the grocery store. Well, that's obviously not good. If you are, however, setting your mind on spiritual things, things of Christ, and saying, okay, Lord, as I go into the grocery store, I want to purchase things that will honor you, well, that's good. That's setting your mind on things above. So, to know whether or not we're doing this effectively, we look at how we are spending our time. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things according to the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If we are living according to the Spirit, it means that our mind is set on the Spirit. So, when we look at our own lives, we need to see the spiritual fruit of God in our daily lives. And we're not going to turn there, but I want to um, call you to mind the story of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they've had the Last Supper, and um, all the disciples thought that they had set their mind on Christ. Peter has his declaration, I will never deny you, even if it means death, And we know how that turned out. But all the other disciples joined in too. All of them left that upper room saying, "God, Lord Jesus, you are God. We are with you. And we are with you even if it means death. And so then they go out and Jesus says, stay awake, watch and pray, or you're going to enter into temptation. And he goes off and prays by himself. And he comes back and finds them sleeping. And he says, wake up! Or else you're going to enter into temptation. And he goes away and prays. And then again, they're sleeping. And then what happens when Jesus is betrayed? All the disciples run away. They all flee. They thought that they had set their mind on Christ. They thought in their head that they were truthfully, fully sold out, committed to stand with Christ, even if it meant death, but their actions showed where their heart was. They were more concerned with getting some sleep than praying to avoid the temptation that Jesus had just said, if you don't pray, you will enter into temptation. Their minds were set on carnal things, sleep. So, it's a safe assumption here that pretty much everyone here wants to please God. And you're here for the Sunday morning service. That's great. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm not being sarcastic here. It, it's, a, it's a great thing that we're all here gathered. And I hope you, in your heart, want to please God. But that desire to please God is it brought to bear in every minute of every day of your life. Is your life one lived according to the Spirit? Is your life um, reflecting the fact that in every situation, no matter how big or small, you are seeking and following the leading of the Holy Spirit? You are submitting to the will of God rather than your own will. Because if your life doesn't reflect that in every minute, granted this is impossible, right? In every minute we are trying to glorify God, if our life doesn't reflect that, then we have work to do. And we cannot just sit back and say, well, I am saved. That's good enough. We have to live lives according to the Spirit. And so if our life doesn't reflect our thoughts being according to the Spirit, we have work to do. We might have the tendency, even if we aren't just coasting by, saying, I'm saved, that's good enough, we might have the tendency to plan our life around what's culturally acceptable for Christians. So it's not really culturally acceptable for Christians to miss church a whole bunch, right? So if you are public about the fact that you're a Christian, people expect you to go to church. But maybe people... um, Don't have any expectations for you on Christmas Eve. Maybe it's culturally acceptable to not come on Christmas Eve. And, well, if you are just basing it off what other people will think, if you are just basing it off your gut personal um, feelings about what's a good Christian life, that's not good enough. We have to be following the Spirit as He has revealed truth to us in the Word of God. So point number one, our actions will reveal where our mind is set. We know we are supposed to set our minds on God, and uh, it's up to us to make sure we're doing that to the point where our actions are in line. Point number two that we see here in verse six is, if you are spiritually minded... You have life from and peace with God. Verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So, to be carnally minded is death. This is talking about total devotion to carnal things. This is talking about people who are not saved. This is not saying if you are in Christ but thinking about grocery lists too much, well then, you're not going to go to heaven. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying if you are um, carnally minded all of every day, it will mean death for you in the end at God's Day of Judgment. But, if you are spiritually minded, it means life and peace. Uh, It is not possible to be spiritually minded from within your sinful self. This is where we get into a little bit what Paul was talking about in chapter 7. That's why I had us read it. I mean, Paul, you've got to remember, he was an apostle. (laughs) He lived a righteous life. All throughout the Gospels, we see Paul saying his conduct was blameless uh, in public. As far as anybody could see, Paul was a super righteous guy. And Paul says in his heart, he longed to follow the law of God. He delights in the law of God in his inner man. But his flesh doesn't get with the program. And so Paul, this man who is righteous enough that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write, follow me as I follow Christ, this this very righteous man, from our perspective, from his perspective, is a wretched man. But he had life from and peace with God because he devoted himself to that spiritual mind. He cultivated within himself a delight to do God's will. Nobody can be a good person apart from God. That's a myth that's very prevalent in our society, um, that anybody can basically be a good person so long as they make society happy, Um, and they don't steal things, and they don't murder anybody, and they don't uh, do all these other things. It's even okay if you lie a little bit as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, right? This is our society's view of what it means to be good. But that is not God's view of what it means to be good. That thinking, according to God, is carnal thinking. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We see similarly stated here in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you need faith in order to think spiritually. You need faith in order to have that life and peace from God and for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, one interesting thing here that we see in in verses 5 and 6, it's talking about living according to the Spirit. And this um, really throws into relief for us the the triune nature of God. We see all three persons of the Trinity involved in our salvation in this passage. So we see that the Father draws us to faith in the Son by the Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are involved here, and that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That faith is what gives us the spiritual mind. That faith is what brings us life and peace. I was listening to a podcast, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago at this point, and it was an interview someone was doing with a self-described agnostic. Um, and it was not an interview about spiritual things at all, but the Bible came up and Jesus came up. And um, this self-described agnostic guy said, I love Jesus. I can... Honestly say, I love Jesus. Jesus tells us to love one another. This is great stuff. Now, setting aside all of Jesus' teachings that this guy would have not liked so much, this guy, in this interview, he said, I've read the Bible cover to cover four times, and then I set it aside because I pretty much got everything I could get from it. (laughs) That's a carnal mind. That's the mind that leads to death. That is not a mind um, given to us by the Spirit when we have faith in Jesus Christ. So, point number one tells us that if we have a spiritual mind, our actions will show it. Point number two tells us that if we are spiritually minded, we have faith in Christ. If we don't have faith in Christ, we can't be spiritually minded. Faith in Christ, um, I, I like someone's definition of that word, a feeling assurance that Christ is who he says he is. So it's something you feel in your heart and something you know in your head. It is a settled confidence of the inner man that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died for our sin, and that God raised him from the dead. So... If we are spiritually minded, we will have faith. What does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with the incarnation? Well, point number three gets us a little bit closer here. Point number three is that your sinful nature is God's enemy. Your flesh is an enemy of God. Verses 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is strong language. An enemy implies war. In your carnal fleshly state, your sin nature has declared this war on God. Um, War against God never works out well. (laughs) It always results in death. Um, Sometimes, though, we might think it's possible for someone to follow God a bit. Um, We might be tempted to... if if we have an unsaved family member or something like that, if we see them coming to church with us, we might be tempted to think, phew, that's good to go. But sinful people, fleshly people, can do all sorts of outly spiritual things. Um, But but your sinful nature is God's enemy because, verse 7 tells us, it is is not subject to the law of God. Now, remember, we talked about this is much broader than the law of Moses. The law of God is God's standard of himself, his own righteous standard. Um, and, And your sinful nature is not subject to that because it can't be. It is totally evil. It is not even a little bit good. I think the trap that we as Christians fall into even a little bit more than thinking someone can follow God just a little bit or follow God 80%. The trap that we fall into is sometimes we think if we indulge our sin, it can produce godliness. Now you might be saying, wait, what? I don't think that. I never have. But let me ask you this. Have you ever been a little bit later for church than you wanted to be and sped or complained about getting a red light? If you're speeding to get to church, what are you saying? Okay, God, I can disregard the laws of man so that I can honor you by coming into church on time. I'm someone who runs late. Let me tell you, I've done that way too much. We think we can indulge our sin in order to produce godliness, but it's not possible. It doesn't work. Another trap that we often might fall into is if we realize that we are trapped in a sin, if we keep losing our temper or something, we might be inclined to put off confessing that to God until we've worked on it. Until we have, through our own effort, stopped getting angry at people. Well, that is summoning the powers of our own sinful flesh to try and produce godliness. And it doesn't work. No matter how hard you try, you are utterly incapable of pleasing God with your flesh. That is true before we are saved. That is true after we are saved. Our flesh, our sin nature, cannot please God. So we see these three points about life, about life in the flesh. Our actions reveal where we have set our mind, and... If we are spiritually minded, we have life from God. And our sinful nature is God's enemy. These three things, pulled into isolation like this, don't really seem to connect very well with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, so, So we see these three points, but we need a bridge to get us from these three points, to that state of no condemnation. And the bridge, obviously, is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. We see it there in verse 1. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are outside Christ Jesus don't have this promise. So we know the bridge is Jesus Christ, but Paul is more specific than that. And we see in verses 2 and 3, the bridge is the incarnation of, Jesus Christ. The bridge is that God the Son became a man. We see here in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So let's pause for a moment and define um, our word law because it's in here a lot and it's used in different ways. So first we have the law think less, tax law, and more law of physics. Um, It's just a thing that is true. Then we have the law of God. And this is God's unchanging, perfect power and authority from his throne in heaven. And we have the law of Moses, which was God's instruction for the children of Israel before Christ, after Moses. Moses. Then we see this phrase in here that shows up at the end of chapter 7, the law of sin and death. This seems to refer to the fact that our flesh is trapped in sinfulness. Our sinful nature is trapped in sinfulness. Paul saying he cannot stop sinning no matter how much he wants to do so. That's what, the context in which he uses that phrase, the law of sin and death. And then we have this phrase, the law of sin of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And when we hit phrases like that, our tendency can be to kind of gloss over and just be like, oh, that's something spiritual about Jesus, um, and, and move on to something that's a little easier to understand. But there's a lot of value in untangling this. What on earth is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? Well, it becomes a little bit easier to understand if we adopt that interpretation of the word law as thinking less tax law and more a law of physics or a law of thermodynamics or something. It, it's just something that is true. It is a power that we are under. Um, so the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this is, I believe, it's referring to the law that gets written in our heart when we get a new nature in Christ. When we are in Christ, we have the law of the spirit in our hearts. And this is not a code of ordinances that punishes us when we do bad things. This is not saying the Holy Spirit will write us a ticket when we sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's true now. Um what this is, is a law that transforms us from the inside out, from, from our deepest thoughts and affections outward. This, is, this, this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus um, is our new nature that helps us fight our sin. And it helps bear, well, it doesn't help bear the fruit of the Spirit. It, it allows us to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Without that new nature, it's impossible. Um, so, so the law of the Spirit in verse 2 there is given to all who are in Christ. So this is our new nature. This is our new man. This is talking about sanctification. Right? I said we get all those Asian words coming out of Romans. Justification is right standing before God. It is guaranteeing of our delivery from final condemnation for sin. That's what we see in verse 1. And then in verse 2, sanctification, we see the process of being delivered from sin in this life. This is the fruit that the Holy Spirit brings to bear as we stop fighting against God and instead fight with God against our sin. Justification happens first but they are inseparable. Justification and sanctification go together. So again, the bridge to get here from there is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We see in verse 3 the reason why the law of Moses, I think, you you could disagree there, but I think the best interpretation here is at the beginning of verse 3 we're talking about the law of Moses. The law could not justify, the law could not sanctify, because it was weak through the flesh. Now consider what this means. Even if you were to keep the whole law, just hypothetically, through all your human effort, you've done it. You've kept the whole law. Um, The law of Moses had statutes that would theoretically help you set your mind on God. If you obeyed the whole law of Moses, your actions would give the appearance of you being spiritually minded. But the law of Moses was unable to change your heart from being God's enemy. But God made a way by sending his son in the flesh. This is why the incarnation is so important. Don't get distracted at Christmas time by how charming the story is. Who doesn't love a story about a young woman who um, has a child and is going to be looked down on by her community, but she does it anyway because she trusts God. And, and then they have to travel and it's difficult and give birth in a stable. And then they have to take off and go to Egypt to run away from an evil king. It's a very charming story story in and of itself and it is true and it is good but don't get distracted by by the delightful nature of the story think about the big truth behind it all which is this if god had just chosen a human baby and he had given that human baby special power to do miracles given that human baby Special protection from sin. If that human baby had grown up to be a man and fulfilled every element of the law, it would have meant nothing for you and me. The only reason any of this means anything for us is that God was in the flesh. Every man, every child of Adam... Um, Receives Adam's sin. We see elsewhere here, for as by one man sin entered into the world, by Adam sin entered into the world, and death by sin, even so, by one man life enters more abundantly. Um, it had to be God in the flesh because every man is naturally God's enemy, but God can't be God's enemy. God cannot be against himself. So Christ, who had perfect peace with God, because he was God, and because he is God, and because he always will be God, is the reason that we see in verse 3 that God was able to condemn, condemn sin in the flesh. Now condemning sin in the flesh. First of all, we see here, he condemned sin in the flesh. It is something that God has done. God has condemned sin in the flesh. Now what we think about here is that when we hear the phrase condemned sin in the flesh, our brain jumps to standing before God on the judgment day. God says, you're a sinner And that's the condemnation. That's not the condemnation that we're talking about here. The law is able to do that. The law is able to say, you're a sinner, you deserve punishment. And in fact, the law did that um, for many things. But what we see here in verse 3, the law couldn't do something, but God did it by sending his Son in the flesh. He condemned sin in that flesh. Now, what this, I believe, is referring to is the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified in his body. It says he became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And the condemnation of God against sin was poured out on the body of Jesus the human body of Jesus. So we see here, matter matters to God. (laughs) The stuff that God created is important to him. Jesus did not die a spiritual death. Jesus died a physical death. He died in his body, and he had to get a body to be able to die in his body. And he had to die in his body to be able to save us. I hope you got all that because I know it was a little twisted. But uh, the, So, so what I'm, my big point that I'm trying to make here, if you walk away with one thing, it's what I said at the very beginning. God the Father sent his son to be born as a man to save sinful men. But remember that it was important that Christ be a man. It was necessary because God needed to redeem all of us. And we are people. We have flesh. We have flesh that wars against our inner man. We needed all of us. All of ourselves to be redeemed. So, what on earth, what sort of bearing does this have on our lives today? Well, uh, let me say this. If at Christmas time you are distracted from the reality um, that Jesus was God in human flesh, um, you're missing out. Last year, I had, oh, how old was she? An eight month old at Christmas time. And it was very helpful to me to see this eight month old human flesh and think about God being in the flesh. But I think where this truth bears on our lives the most is right there in verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If we are living lives of faith that reflect our, um, our own knowledge and experiential knowledge of the fact that we aren't condemned in Christ. Let me try to phrase that a little bit better. If we are living a life remembering the truth of this verse if we are living a life completely realizing the fact that there's no condemnation for all those who are in Christ, then we'll be free. And um, maybe, maybe you don't have that freedom. It's really where my burden is today. This room is big enough. Chances are pretty good that somebody here does not know Christ. So maybe you're lost, and you've been trying to be spiritually minded. You've been trying to honor God with your actions. You've been doing this for years, and as far as any of us can tell, um, you have made progress. But inside, you feel the same anguish that Paul does at the end of chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am. Inside you feel this anguish, this bondage to sin. Um, But Paul, in the next verse, can say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you, maybe, have never felt that light burden of Christ. And I urge you, trust him today. Only God the Son, who is also the God-man, Only he can change you. Only he can overcome your flesh. Only he can give you a new nature that is under no condemnation. And if you want to do that, but you don't know how, please talk to someone today before you leave. Maybe you are in Christ already, and you're just distracted. This is the camp I feel like I fall into daily. We want to please Christ but we're just so busy, or we're just so tired. Um, Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, like the disciples in the garden with Christ where they're sleeping when we should be praying. It's Christmas. People are busy. We might even have in the back of our minds, well, Easter is really the important holiday, right? We can just take a moment to, to think about the Christmas story, and we're good to go. There is no Easter without Christmas. Or maybe you've been distracted by something different. Maybe you are saved, but you are thinking that in some way you can earn good standing with God within that salvation. Um, Maybe you are, rather than resting in the fact that you have no condemnation in Christ and trusting in the Spirit to bear fruit in you, you are trying to do it in your own strength And I would just remind you that Jesus felt all the pressures of being human and said, cast your cares on me. He knows what it's like. No matter your circumstances, my encouragement to everyone here is the same. Cling to Christ, the God-man. God sent him into the world to save us, and he did it in a miraculous way, a virgin birth. All of those circumstances that make the story so charming, each one is miracle after miracle. Um, walk in the spirit, forsake your own flesh, and the fleshly world around you. Don't be fooled. Don't settle for anything less than all of Christ. We're going to sing now. Um, <laughs> all four verses of In Christ Alone. We don't typically do four verses for a closing song, but this song takes us through the whole of Christ's story, his birth, his death, his resurrection, um, and then it talks about where we should put our hope